0: Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answer Answered yes to both of those questions. Visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kwame. I'm glad to be here. It is our pleasure to have you. I'm very excited for this one. So, how would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: Well, I'm a negotiation coach. What that means is I help people that want to pursue negotiation excellence, or they want to negotiate better in that journey. So I take a a lot of the principles of negotiation, different skill sets, and then I help them in improving themselves. I show them my process, and I teach them a system where they will know exactly what to do, when to do it, and know exactly
0: what their next step should be. Fantastic. Great. Yes. And uh, listeners, I'll put Alan's info in the description so you can get in touch with him and connect with him on LinkedIn. He's uh, one of my favorite LinkedIn influencers when it comes to (laughs) negotiation. So yeah, so we appreciate that info. So yeah, I'm excited for this episode. Today we're going to cover negotiation myths. And so we're going to start off with win-win. We're talking about trust then, and then we're going to end up with getting to yes versus starting with no. So how about we start off with win-win versus what you like, mission and purpose. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Well, the word win-win is a very seductive idea. It sounds really good. And uh, it is what is usually proposed nowadays that uh, by anyone who has been to uh, studied in academia or read a book on negotiation. This idea of win-win where you win and I win is it's a great feeling. The problem is, English is my second language, and I kind of consider myself a student of uh, language and words and their meaning. And I think the word win has a specific meaning. It means that someone is winning in a competition, right? So when you win, someone has to lose. How many of you want to see a race where everyone wins? Not many people. How many boxing matches do you want to watch where both win? Well... No one likes to lose, so the idea of win-win is very seductive. The problem is the word win has a meaning is it's, it's about uh, competition. But most of the negotiation that I'm in is we are really not competing. They want one thing, and we want something else. For instance, if I'm going to buy a car, the car salesman doesn't want to collect as he can. He wants to sell the car and get cash. Me, on the other hand, I want a reliable, dependable uh, car that I can drive to work and earn money. So I want to part away with some of my cash to get a car. We are not fighting over the same thing. This is oversimplifying it. But in in a business negotiation, for instance, one of my clients may be selling parts or selling components or selling something that they make. Their customer needs that component in order to make a bigger machine in order for it to go into a car, a truck, a building, a crane, whatsoever. But they're not really competing over the same product. It's not a win-win. It's really an alignment of mission. During this time, is, is what I'm doing making sense for you in helping you move your mission and purpose forward? It may be at a certain time in the future, I no longer add value to your company because we're either too expensive we can no longer meet your delivery demands, or we can no longer meet the volume that you need from us, and then we have to part ways. There's no lose. we just have to move on to another customer. So to me, it's more of an alignment of mission is can I help you move your mission and purpose forward versus looking at one thing and how are we gonna split this?
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So in your experience, if somebody has a win-win type of mentality and they go into a negotiation where the other person has a win-lose type of mentality, where they're trying to play to win, what type of mistakes do you see from the person who is thinking win-win? What are the tactical errors that they're actually making at the negotiation table?
1: A person that goes in with a win-win mindset feels that both sides have to be happy or they have to get something out of it. We, on the other hand, prefers that no deal is much better than being stuck in a horrible deal, right? But if a win-win person is negotiating with a win-loss, the win-win person will almost always lose because they are taking on the responsibility in trying to make sure the other person gets to win. So they will invariably start to compromise in order to make a deal happen. In fact, I've seen people say when they go in, they go in with a BATNA and they'll just say, if this doesn't work, this is my fallback. We have to make something happen. I have spent so much time on this deal. I have to walk away with something. So what happens is they end up compromising.
0: Now, that's interesting. And you're spot on here with, with what you're saying. And so let me play devil's advocate somebody who has the um, win-win mentality, what they would say is, well, in order to make something happen, I do need to sweeten the deal for them. I need to make something good happen for the opponent or the person on the other side, or they're just not going to say yes. So isn't it a good thing to compromise? Well, compromises is not a bad thing. It's
1: when you have to make compromises that jeopardize your mission and purpose. My job is to help my clients not make compromises that they do not have to make. Basically, avoid unnecessary compromises. So by nature, it's not bad to compromise. But what are you compromising? Most times, they're compromising profits. When a salesperson goes in, they want to sell a product at $100, they cut off the walkaways at $80. A lot of them, if they do not know how to negotiate, When they come across a win-loss person and the win-loss person says, nope, this is not good enough, go sharpen your pencil. If they say it once or twice, sometimes in the first time, they will drop it by 10%, just in one word, no. If they push back a few more times, the inexperienced salesperson will go drop right down to the, the walkaway price of $80. So what's at stake? They're compromising their company's ability to move forward with the profit that they need to make because he's afraid to negotiate.
0: Yep, you're absolutely right. And I I like the way that you categorized compromise because not all compromises are created equally. So you, you want to avoid unnecessary compromise. And I think that's the distinction that makes it, that's so difficult for uh, people when it comes to negotiation because there's a little bit of art behind it. So I know I need to compromise. How much is too much? When is the right time? Those are the types of things that kind of make it difficult for people. And I think it's almost a fear response that leads them to retreat quickly. So for somebody who's in that position, how do you help them to distinguish between an appropriate compromise and an inappropriate compromise?
1: So this is a mindset exercise. It's kind of like a boxer going to the ring. They never think about how many punches am I going to be willing to take before I take a dive, right? So you go in ready to fight. So you're going to keep on pivoting and it's kind of like a sport. It's kind of like a sport of boxing. So what are you trying to achieve? What is the real problem here? What does success look like to you guys? Right? Asking these questions, creating discovery, discovering what you need so that you can talk about the real issue instead of kind of fixated on one term. And price is just one of the terms. What if, what if, I'm selling you a product, Kwame. And instead of selling it to you at $100, I'll sell it to you at $80. The problem is I don't deliver it to you on time. Now what? So it's like uh, my my clients, right? Sometimes they're selling parts that are critical to the operations of their customer. Sometimes it's not, Kwame. Sometimes it may be like, it's screw. But it's a very specially made screw, it's a very small part, it may cost 50 cents. However, not getting this screw on time may actually hold up the production of an aircraft carrier. So what is the risk and the impact of not getting that part on time, but getting the the price that you want?
0: Does your company invest in professional development training? we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So it's about figuring out what it is that you really need and figuring out what you can and can't give on for each specific issue without getting fixated on one specific issue. And most of the time, it's the, the fixation is on the price, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, the, the problem there is the fixation on the on, on term. And that's why in negotiation, most of the time, what we want to find out is the impact on that person. Let me give you an example. One of my clients, his account manager was trying to negotiate with their customer and they needed to have an annual 3 or 4% increase on their price. Their customer said no. And they said no for about two or three months. Every time he asked, look, we need to increase the price on these parts, the answer came back, you cannot do this. We are not going to be able to do this. So instead of arguing back and forth on the price, I just asked him, why don't you ask him, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? And his idea was, I can't ask that question. That seems stupid because they'll obviously say, I don't want you to raise prices, right? But because there's there's a series of things that we did, but ultimately, the one question in that interaction we wanted to find out is, what do you want us to do? And the answer came back, and you'll be surprised. My client's customer said, if you do not raise prices on these parts, I will give you a whole new group of products to make for us. Why? Because these parts, I am being observed by upper management, and I have a metric that I have to meet. And I have to keep my prices down at a certain price point, and if it goes up beyond that, it's going to affect my bonus at the end of the year. So my customer obviously said, "Yeah, no problem. We will not raise price on these part on these parts so let us let's take on this new group of uh, products for you
0: That's a great example. yeah, I love that example because it shows also the difference between uh, curiosity and and running with your assumptions because the assumption is that They definitely don't want a price increase, period. And if I ask this question, I know what they're going to say. But we really don't know what people are going to say when we ask these seemingly obvious questions or simple questions. But that's why it's so important to ask. And through that, kind of using your terminology here, it revealed that there was some alignment when it came to mission and purpose. When you took the time to go through the investigation, you you saw that alignment. And based on that, you could find flexibility and opportunities in other locations. Exactly. Well, let's move on to number two, the second thing, which is trust. And I know this is something that's going to surprise a lot of people, the myth of trust. And uh, that's one of those business buzzwords that's really, really popular right now. And so when you talk about trust, the necessity of trust being a myth, what do you mean by that?
1: It means that a lot of people hold that to be true, that it's a, an idea or a principle that people follow, and it sounds like it should work. We only do business with people that we like and trust. The problem is that's not true. The problem is we would like to trust someone, but we don't need trust to do business with it. So I'm, I'm trying to be a little nuanced here. We want to do business with people that we trust. But we don't need trust to be able to do business. Just think about this for a minute. How much business does the U.S. do with China right now? A lot, a lot of business. We talk about billions and billions. Like we just we just uh, put tariffs on like a few hundred billions, right? This past year, right? Do we trust the Chinese? Do the Chinese trust the U.S? Are we still doing business?
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: In fact, I have, uh, when I'm called in, is because trust has already been broken. Even this morning, I've got an email from someone who says they have a problem with their partner. This is a partner they've worked with, they trusted them, that's why they went into partnership. But now all of a sudden, there's a problem. There's a distrust, so now I have to come in and help them. I have clients whose customers wrote emails where I have a copy of because I'm, I'm being brought in into the negotiation and you see words like this, I am beyond disgusted with you guys. I'm about to take all my work away from you. There's no trust there. There's not even zero trust as when you meet a stranger. There's a distrust, there's a negative, there's a deficit here, and we still go in and we negotiate, and in one meeting, we can leave, and we can get five or six new uh, blanket appeals from this customer.
0: So in that situation, Cause, because I know this is something that is going to sound strange with, for a lot of the listeners. You're giving examples of times where you are doing business with somebody that you do not trust. And so in that situation, if there is a lack of trust, how do you even begin the negotiation process? If there is, let's, let's say, negative trust, there's a distrust between the parties. How do we negotiate without it?
1: How do we negotiate without it? It's a good question, Kwame. We follow a system. So the system is, what's the mission and purpose? What am I trying to accomplish for this counterpart, this adversary, this negotiation, opposition here? What do they want? How can I help them get it? If I can show them that I can help them get something they cannot get otherwise, it doesn't matter whether they like or trust me. I am not saying that trust is not a good thing. Trust makes the deal go faster, absolutely. Ideally, you want trust, because Trust is a feeling at the end of the day. When you do business with a salesperson for the first time, I've seen people say, oh, yeah, I trust him. Based on what? <laughs> you just met the guy. How do, you know, how do you know he's not a great actor? That's why there's so many con men out there trying to make people like and trust them. They have mastered the handshake and the smile, right? So how do you know, how do you know that they're not trying to con you? So you focus on what is the, what is the problem? Can you solve it? Can you help them see that you can help them solve it? And this is where you come in, people like attorneys, people like you that are good at contract law. You, you want to make sure there's a strong agreement to make sure that everybody does what they do, right? I've had I've had clients that have had customers not pay on time, and they were threatening not to do business with them anymore. I've went in, I've talked to them, and what they did is they just need to have a good agreement on how to get paid, and they continue doing business. You see that often. They just change payment terms from 60 days to 30 days to pay on delivery to prepay. They're just changing the terms in order to continue doing business, even though there's no trust, right?
0: So in those examples, really what's happening is you're focusing on the problem that they need to be solved and the problem that you need to be solved and finding creative ways through negotiation to solve those problems and then having the additional layer of being mindful that there is a lack of trust and creating mechanisms to to kind of bridge that trust gap. Exactly.
1: That trust gap is real. It's a feeling. And the feelings are real. So we have to acknowledge that. We want to bring we we don't want to rely on those feelings, but we also realize that those feelings can be changed with a new vision. If I can help them see that I am the best option for them and getting this product, or this part, or this service, or to help them solve this particular problem, then we have a deal. It doesn't mean we have to be friends. Do you know that a lot of like people that have gone through divorce, they, they don't trust each other, but yet they have to make deals on how to work with their kids, because their kids is the mission and purpose.
0: Hmm. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, sometimes we have to work with people we don't like, and that's part of <laughs> That's part of why why we have to learn how to negotiate to work with difficult people.
0: Exactly. Fantastic. Well, perfect. Let's move on to the third one, which is getting to yes versus starting with no. And I know this is one of the fundamental tenets of your style of negotiation, starting with no, which I know is a little bit counterintuitive. So we already touched on getting to yes, which is the win-win methodology. Can you tell us more about what we mean when it comes to starting with no? Sure. Before
1: I get to start with no, I just want to kind of wrap up the first part where we talked about win-win. If if you follow what I'm talking about, helping someone fulfill their mission and purpose, at the end of that negotiation, what we have is true win-win. I even hate saying those words because it's <laughs> It's kind of like the best alternative. I know that. That's, I sometimes use mutually beneficial agreements, okay, in place of win-win. But win-win is a very catchy word. But at the end of the day, they further their mission and purpose, and I do as well. But it is not both of us arguing over one apple, and then both of us splitting it, and you get some, and I get some, and we all walk away a little less happy, or we both compromise a little bit. So it's not that. But that is what people have made win-win to be, especially I have negotiated with guys that that are buyers for Walmart, Kmart, and Target, right? Mm -hmm. And they will say things like, uh, Kwame, I need you to give me the best price because if you give me the lowest possible price, you get to make a lot of these for us. That's win-win. But really, it's win-win for them, meaning they win twice. They get (laughs) a lot of product and they get to pay a little bit for it. And you have to work really hard for very little profit. So really, that's not win-win. But back to the third question of start with no. You know I'm a camp guy. I was trained by Jim camp many years ago. A lot of what I do is uh, the foundation is, is start with no. And the reason I embrace that methodology or that idea or approach or the principles is that it is much more, to me, genuine, authentic by asking someone to tell me what they don't want than for me to try to get them to say these micro yeses, right, mm-hmm. because that seems manipulative to me. Trying to get someone, is this a good day? Is this what you want? This is what you want, right? Kwame, do you want to be successful, mm-hmm. right? The reason we say start with no is we want to uncover what it is that you do not want. It is much more respectful because I'm not gonna try to manipulate you. If at any time this, uh, this deal doesn't make sense, I want you to just tell me no and then we'll just go a different direction or we'll just end it here. Is that fair? Most of the time they'll say, "Yeah, fair." I've never seen anyone say, "No, that's not fair." So when we say start with no fundamentally, that is something that all of us want to say but we are afraid of saying it. We are afraid of hurting people, we are afraid of ruining relationships. We do not know how to say say no gracefully, respectfully in a way that preserve that relationship while I preserve Myself, my resources. Right? No hits people in a very visceral way. The first thing I have six kids, and the first things that my, my kids have uh, learned to say is no, because no is their way of controlling the environment. They get to say no, nope, I don't want to go to bed. No, I don't want to eat that uh, banana pudding. No, I don't want to be kissed. So no is a way for them to control their surroundings, and so. In terms of negotiation, giving the other person the opportunity to say no, it's very important to us.
0: See, that's really interesting. And I think for a lot of people, it's a scary approach because they almost feel like they are prompting people to say no, which makes it more likely for them to say no during the negotiation. But what you're saying is that in your experience, it's actually the exact opposite. By giving them the opportunity to say no early and often it makes them feel safer which makes them more likely to agree if agreement is the right decision for them. Correct. Let me give you an example.
1: So this is this the principle of giving the person the opportunity to say no or inviting a no is coupled with something that I call tactical vulnerability. The willingness for us to be hurt by the other person to just kind of put myself out there. So there was this deal where my client's customer was not happy with them. They were delivering parts that were not meeting quality standards. They were failing in the field and it was gonna cost tens of thousands of dollars for these parts to be returned. And so, and that was just the beginning of it. With all the parts that were in the field, it could cost millions of hundreds of millions to kind of retool and bring it back and ship it back and remake and deliver again, right? Mm -hmm. So... When I got the email, it was, we saw your mission and purpose about delivering quality parts. This is laughable. I'm like, oh, this is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Usually when I get the emails I'm copied on, it's never good. I'm like, okay, all right, so let me do some research. Come to find out, this part by my client's customer, they attempted to have that made offshore. They couldn't make it. They came to my client years ago to have this made. But along the way, different people have started managing it, and they'd had no idea that my client was doing them a favor by making these parts. So that one little nugget, I had a whole conference table, maybe about 15, 20 foot long, laid out with all the communication. I'm just reading through them and just kind of found that one little nugget. So we used that one little nugget, and we talked to them, and I called them, and I just say, look, it looks like we've completely failed you, and we're completely incompetent, in making these parts good for you, and out of a hundred parts, we're getting about forty forty percent that are unusable, and they're failing the field. I this that uh, I know that our our promise is about uh, uh, less than like half of a percent to one percent uh, uh, defect rate, but forty percent is unacceptable. No wonder you're yelling at us, and I'm surprised that you're not cussing on me right now. And he's like, oh, no, I'll never cuss at you, Alan. I'm like, oh, if I were in your spot, I would. Right? This is uh, this goes into de-escalation, but. So finally, I said, well, we have tried to make these parts and it's very difficult. I don't know that there's anyone else in the country or in this world that can make this really well. But maybe we don't know. Why don't you just tell me where you want us to ship these patterns and this tooling? And we'll go ahead and do that as soon as possible for you. The customer immediately said, no, 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 no. That is the last thing we want to hear from you. See, at first, they were just the kind of threatening that they were not happy with us. They're, our mission purpose was laughable. They don't want to give any more business to us. To when we were able to help them see that, uh, yeah, we shouldn't have taken this project. It's very difficult. I don't know how anyone could have done it well. 40% is unacceptable to us. So you just tell us where to ship this to, and we'll do it. And it's a, we were basically calling the bluff and becoming very vulnerable. So at that point, the whole game turned around, and they said, "Can you please continue to make this for us we're gonna we're gonna put in a system that will test uh will test these parts before we mount them, and that will be on us and we'll take care of that blah 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 But at the end of the day, my client didn't have to compromise but prior to that, the cost of tearing down and shipping things back and remaking it, the first batch was just going to be like thirty thousand and The first reaction from uh, the account manager of my client was like, "Uh, how about we compromise and just uh, come to an agreement and meet in the middle and see how much they're willing to take instead of $30,000, let us say 15000 or they owe us money for shipping these other parts. How about we just say, forget about that invoice. But the problem, Kwame, is when we do that, we are going to accept every single failure that happens in the field that will cost millions in the future. So there was no way we could do that. So it took a little bit of time to look through all the notes. So one of the steps in a good negotiation strategy is just doing research. So I had to go and print out all the communications for the last couple of years, lay it on the table, go through all the emails back and forth, just to find out that when we agreed to take on this project, they could not get it made anywhere else. So
0: essentially, I was inviting him to tell me no. This is a really interesting approach and again like i said i it's scary but you the the term you used strategic vulnerability it's it's very clear how that comes into play here and so first step you did was research and then after that it seems where the deviation is between where you decided to take the negotiation and where your client initially wanted it to go was that their first move was going to be compromise immediately before absolutely Doing anything else, they were going to compromise. And it's a great example of an unnecessary compromise because you didn't need to do that. And what you did first, instead of trying to find that yes, was you started with no, just like you said. You gave them the opportunity to say no. And it's, it's almost like one of those judo type of situations. They're attacking you and they assume that they're going to, you're going to meet their force with force or just concede. And what you do instead is the exact opposite of what they anticipate. You invite them to say no, and so from their side, thinking about the impact that maneuver has on them, what do you think is going through their mind when you when you start off the negotiation in that way?
1: One of the purpose of one of the steps of tactical vulnerability is to help the other person feel safe, that they're in control. That yes, you want to fire us, you can, but have you considered this? Is what I want. I want them to see that yes. They have the power to do everything they want to do to us. And then I help them see the risk. It's exactly what you say in judo. Someone wants to throw you, you just pivot and change, and now you're possibly in the same position throwing them using their force against them.
0: Exactly. I love that. I think that's a really great example. Before I wrap it up, I wanted to ask you this, is when it comes to this uh, starting with no, it's One of the reasons why it's so counterintuitive is because you are, through making them feel safe, you're also making them feel powerful. And some people might feel concerned about, well, I'm making myself seem vulnerable. I'm also making them feel powerful by reminding them that they have the ability to say no. But what it sounds like is that by making them feel powerful and safe, they don't feel the need to use that power on you. Whereas if you try to disempower them and say, no, you can't say no to me. It almost makes them want to test that to impress upon you <laughs> that they can say no. It's almost inviting that. It, am I reading that right? You are exactly right. That power, the knowledge of, of having control
1: of feeling in control actually helps them keep that in check so they don't use it. I mean, one quick example. Well, a customer was, uh, one of my, my client was having problem delivering parts to a customer to the point where earlier I said they were totally disgusted. So finally I pulled up the, the tactical vulnerability and I said, look, most of the stuff we do, you can do it. In fact, it sounds like you can do it better than we do it. And then I just softened my voice and I just say, in a, in a curious way, I just said, why don't you just fire us? My client's account manager looked at me, his eyes are wide open in fear. (laughs) At this point, both of them were going into a shouting match, right? They were, they were, it was heated and the, my, my client's account manager's customer was standing up and raising his voice. And when I said, why don't you just fire us? He said, don't you think I've never thought of that? And then he just says, and he started to sit down and he goes, well, he started thinking. The reason, uh, the reason I, I won't fire you guys is you guys make these one difficult, complex parts better than anyone else. And I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, what else? He goes, well, because you guys are able to give us updates on a weekly basis that no other suppliers have agreed to do. And that helped us in our planning and stuff. I'm like, great. By the time we left that meeting, I mean, we start driving back to the office. It was like a four or five-hour drive. Halfway through, I'm getting emails And we have like five or six new blanket POs. This is from the customer that wrote an email that said, I am beyond disgusted with you guys.
0: That's quite the turnaround.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just, why don't you fire us? Guess what? Does he have the right to fire us? Absolutely. Anytime he wanted. It's a power he has. I'm just giving him the power he already
0: has and I'm voicing it. Right. That's perfect. Fantastic. Well, we are coming up on time here. So before you go, I want to give you an opportunity to let the listeners know a little bit more about what you're doing and how they can get in touch with you. Well,
1: I love coaching. I like uh, helping individuals, professionals, sales teams, account management teams, customer service, executive teams negotiate the deals, whether it's critical deals with the supplier or customers, or turning around a dissatisfied customer, or building strong agreements. I love to help them with a process and a system that they can depend on and rely on, that their sales manager can use to manage a whole team of 10, 20, 100, and the same system that you can use to just get updates on as an executive. It's simple, but it's certainly not easy. So what I like doing is uh, working with companies and uh, helping them negotiate some of these difficult challenges.
0: Well, great. Alan, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure here, Kwame. get the most out of these crucial conversations.